Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert. But which desert? Well, all of them in the Americas. The deserts run up the western spine of these twin continents, North and South America. Tall walls of mountains on the boundary of the great plates that make up the surface of our haunted planet. From Antarctica and the Andes through Central America and up the narrow spine of Baja, California. Northward through the Sierra Nevada, the Rockies, the Cascades, the coast ranges of Vancouver to the Yukon, the Brooks Range, the Alaska Range. The whole eastern edge of the Ring of Fire, the Cordillera of the Americas. When the mountains are tall enough, they catch up the clouds and the rain and the snow and their jagged peaks, starving the land beyond of water. And what we get in return is the desert, nature in the minimalist form. Perfect and sublime in its scarcity of plant life, its strangeness of animal life. The Great Basin Desert starts on the violent eastern slopes of the Sierra Nevada, north of the Mojave, and then it stretches across the entire width of Nevada and half of Utah. The loneliest road in America is U.S. Highway 50. It runs right through the middle. It never feels that lonely to me. For example, it has plenty of highway patrolmen. One of these guys was parked up on a dirt ridge outside of Austin, Austin, Nevada. And sure enough, I rolled past, arguably within the speed limit. And he turned on all 500 lights and came chasing after me. My crime? Well, I'd bought a vehicle, still had the dealer plates, which, by the way, officer, are legal for driving. That's sort of the point. But this old boy was bored, sitting up there on the dirt pile. Probably daydreaming about a new camouflage hoodie five sizes too big. And he pulls me over and takes about five minutes to sputter out what the problem might be. His problem, I mean. I had no problems at all on that 
glorious winter day. You see, the entire vehicle was filled with matching cardboard boxes. And everyone had a label that read Desert Oracle Spring 2015. The first issue. And like Johnny Appleseed before me, I was traveling the land dispersing the fruits of my labors. Or the seeds, I guess, in this comparison. Well, the trooper fooled around in his car for a while. Even though my name was on the registration, same as on my driver's license, all in good order. And I really should have just thrown it into reverse and rear-ended him while he was sitting there playing with a cop computer. That would have woken him up. But back then, even just six years ago, I... I still had a bad habit of trying to accommodate malicious people. Especially when they had me trapped. So I just sat there and when he comes back, he wants to chat. I said, buddy, I got a lot of ground to cover. I'm working. Well, he wants to know what I do for work and etc. Real detective there, not noticing the entire vehicle was filled with identical boxes that maybe the driver wanted to take somewhere. So I tell him, tersely, that I publish a desert magazine about the folklore and history of our arid lands. And I gotta get... Well, what a coincidence. He also works at the local history museum in the next town, etc. And because his museum is not actually open for business, well, I'm free to go on my way. I give him a handful of copies of the first issue and say, Peace be upon you, and off I go. Where I was headed, now, that was a bit of a mystery. Because so far, this inaugural voyage to spread the good news was not going so great. I did not expect candy and flowers, as the Pentagon used to tell those poor, deluded 911 recruits to expect in Iraq. But I had not foreseen the sheer determination of bookshop and gift store employees and managers to out of hand reject a free stack of handsome little magazines that they were free to either sell and keep the proceeds from or just dump in the recycling. I even included a birch display stand engraved, which I figured might entice a manager or owners they could easily reverse the stand and use it for something else. Anyway, it was day three or four and I had no takers anywhere. Not in the big towns like Reno. Not in the small towns that were mostly 
still all closed up and abandoned, this being the long tail of the Great Recession. Online gambling and the general lack of work and money for working people who needed money had led to the closure of most little casinos and hotels and restaurants and cocktail lounges along all the lonely little roads that crisscrossed the vast basin and range landscape of the Great Basin Desert. I drove another several hours just thinking. Thinking it all over. I thought of Harlan Sanders driving his rundown car across the country, trying to convince roadside diners to buy his fried chicken technique, sleeping in his car and living off $100 a month at 65 years old, his whole life in shambles. I'd been to Ely a few times, Ely, Nevada, and I had appreciated the place, but this time it was dead as a morgue, windswept and gloomy. Nothing was open but a mini market and a gas station with a couple of slot machines ringing and dinging over by the beef jerky and the potato chips. When I found a rock shop or a chamber of commerce or a real estate office, I scrawled out some greetings on Desert Oracle letterhead and wrapped the note around the couple of issues I could manage to stuff through the mail slots where it fell in a pile of old penny savers. Everything was closed. Now, you live in a little desert town, you know, certain things are closed on certain days. The gift shops are usually closed midweek, restaurants on Mondays or Tuesdays, etc. But there was nothing open anywhere day after day. That's the point of living in the middle of nowhere, I guess. You don't need anything open too much. Go down and get a steak dinner once a week, senior special, check the P.O. box. Maybe drop by for Sunday services at the one little church that somehow managed to stay in business when all the rest went belly up. Drive two hours to the farm machinery chain store that drove away your local tractor shop. Get some parts for the alfalfa irrigation system. Hard at work or hardly working. And at night, glancing out into the darkness that covers your couple of hundred acres that you could not sell if you wanted, well, maybe your attention is drawn to those strange, pulsing red lights over the northeast quadrant. Where the cattle like to bunch up and sleep together on cold, windy winter nights. Jiminy Christmas, not again. Not again with all that. (laughs) Ely, Nevada and the surrounding ranches and dot-on-the-map communities 
Well, it's one of the world's hot spots for strange lights doing their strange and silent low-altitude maneuvers along basin and range. Read you a couple of reports. September 22, 2019. Four or five bright lights moving south through the valley disappeared and reappeared. My wife and several friends and I were driving west on Highway 6, about eight miles outside of Ely. Wife noticed four to five bright orange lights in a line moving south. So I took out my phone and started to record the lights. They seemed to break up or fall down at an angle and disappear, only to reappear several miles away down the valley. This continued until we could no longer make them out due to the distance. July 14, 20 and 15. A UFO followed us while driving in Nevada a few nights ago. While driving a dark road going from Wells to Ely at night, I saw a light appear behind me. I thought it was a car. Then all three of us saw the light coming closer, then moving from the street to the open country at its left. The light was still pointing at us, but it was moving right to left, like it wasn't touching the highway. A truck got between us and the light, and it took off like it was flying. The truck turned off, and then we saw three lights on the desert to our left. Two lights switched off, and the remaining one returned to the highway, weaving on the road. A perfectly straight stretch of road. Suddenly, it got really close to us, and when another car passed from the opposite direction, the light switched off, and the object was hit by the other car's headlights. I could see a cone-shaped disc behind us, dark violet, black in color, as wide as the opposite lane. Once we neared Ely, the light disappeared for good. Channel 2 in Reno did a special report back in the year 2000, interviewing MUFON's Mark Easter about a UFO flap happening around Ely at the time. Orbs dancing around cottonwood trees, triangular lights zigzagging over the open desert, that sort of thing. And way back in 1952, something very strange was said to occur just outside of Ely. July 7 or August 15, take your pick. According to one version, lacking as usual in newspaper sources or specific locations or documentation, the crash occurred in August. On the town of Ely's website, we found this curious bit of folklore that's about the most detailed account you'll find. One sighting in particular has attracted a fair amount of attention because it allegedly included the recovery of 16 alien bodies. They were killed in a crash landing. That's a higher body count than any other UFO event anywhere. It happened in 1952 near the town of Ruth, which lies just east of Ely. 
The exact date is in dispute. Most online accounts recorded as August 12, although UFO researcher Jeremy Meador thinks it may have happened in 1953. According to the accounts, between 9 and 10 p.m., a UFO crashed into the side of the mining pit at the Robinson Copper Mine, adjacent to Ruth. The crash was witnessed by a number of mine employees who described a purple, oval-shaped glowing object laying on the embankment. It was intact, not broken up. The usual mysterious military truck showed up and hauled it away. It was the summer the flying saucers had returned in force, if they'd ever gone away. In July, the U.S. Capitol was invaded not by a human mob, but by mysterious, fast-moving craft that made sport of the jets sent in pursuit. The craft danced right over the White House and the Capitol Dome. The UFO cultists and flying saucer authors were as busy as they'd been back in the first year of the hysteria, 1947. Depending on which pulp paperback you picked up from that time, flying saucers full of little space pilots were crashing more often than Teslas, just falling out of the sky all over the place. This was the time of the Flatwoods Monster in Braxton County, West Virginia. In the convincing report by two Air Force colonels, John L. McGinn and John R. Barton, who witnessed a formation of three delta-wing mystery craft over the Carson Sink, closer to our area of concern in northern Nevada. The unidentified trio buzzed the colonels as they were being transported by B-25 from Hamilton Field in Marin County to Colorado Springs on the sunny afternoon of July 24, 1952. There is some documentary evidence for the Ely incident, whatever it really was. It comes from the newspaper in Ogden, July 8, under the headline, Fireball Gets a New Twist, Nevada Has Blast and Blaze. Yesterday morning's mysterious fireball viewed over a vast area of Utah, Idaho, Oregon, Washington, and Nevada was still just as much a mystery today. Reports varied from a green pea fireball followed by a long orange streamer to a bright orange fireball with a gaseous light blue smoke trail. People who know about meteors, including Charles Osman of Weber College and Dr. R. N. Thomas of the University of Utah, agreed it had to be awfully big. A new twist was injected this morning when W.S. Hobbs, assistant train master at Montello, Nevada, for the Southern Pacific Railroad, reported that many railroaders heard a heavy explosion around 10.30 a.m. yesterday and saw a column of smoke and dust hanging in the sky. Well, Montello's about 200 miles north of Ely, so who knows... If I can drive three hours across Nevada for no reason at all, I guess the space buddies can crash in two places at once, a month apart, 
It's just hard to make anything from these reports. Nobody seemed to know what was going on, but everybody was seeing something. Meanwhile, the CIA's Robertson panel had investigated the whole phenomena, especially the Cold War nerves involved. And these learned men came to the conclusion that whatever was going on, it had more to do with poltergeists and leprechauns and Martians hot-riding around Earth for kicks and crashing half their fleet into the desert. We believe in aliens like medieval Europeans believed in fairies. It's just something out there. We don't even know why. That's just the way things are. The educated and uneducated, young and old, around the world, we just believe in aliens. Like the fae, the fair folk, the good neighbors, the gentry. The aliens are mostly invisible, able to perform any feat, from teleportation to fornication to mind control. And they are far superior to us. We see what we expect to see, but the light still appeared dancing atop the narrow bands of mountains. Cattle and sheep are still cut up or dropped from above for reasons modern man is too nervous to contemplate. Death candles still illuminate the homes of those about to die. Ghost lights still chase truckers and road trippers down the lonesome highways. And the spiritually inclined whatever their race or culture or background, still make their way to our many sacred mountains and plasma vortexes and other such holy or cursed window areas that dot our planet. Often in neat lines connecting ancient locations of mysterious rock art, standing stones, or holy groves and clear water streams that cure the sick. We live in a magical world. We are part of it. If we remember. If we remember how. Well, I made it up the mountain to Great Basin National Park's Visitor Center, an hour southeast of Ely, shortly before it closed. I was the only visitor on that dark wintry day of snow flurries and ice slush on the two-lane. I got my packet of magazines and the wooden stand together, stood up straight, put on my friendly face, and walked on in. Nobody was around but one old ranger, and he had time to talk. I made my case, and while he could promise nothing as he did not run the gift shop, the old ranger graciously accepted my stuff and pointed out that my new little magazine was the size of a greeting card. We sell piles of greeting cards for five bucks a pop, he said, shaking his head. And there's nothing inside but a place to sign your name. You've got all these stories and pictures inside for the same price. I bet you'll sell a bunch of them. It was enough, enough to provide some hope, hope and change, five dollars and change at least, maybe. Nobody had bought one yet. I drove down the hill toward Baker and the Utah state line and just beyond the national park boundary something caught my eye on the side of the road. The something had eyes of its own, two large black eyes, green skin and a big head. I pulled off into the icy muck and walked back to see this creature sitting on a rusted old kitchen chair beneath a juniper 
He wore an old army jacket and gloves, and he had a beer bottle in his pocket. After taking the alien's picture, I pulled a copy of Desert Oracle over my vest pocket, and I left it in the alien's chest pocket, sticking out so you could see the yellow and the name and the top of the cactus on the cover. Farewell, buddy, I said. As for Colonel Sanders... He finally franchised his chicken recipe to a restaurant in Utah, South Salt Lake. That was the first one, the first KFC. And it was in Utah, down in Moab, that I finally got a bookstore to take the Desert Oracle. Back of Beyond, it's called. The first shop to take him. God bless him. Eventually, I made my way back down to Joshua Tree, where, to my surprise, a couple of little shops had opened right there. In my run-down, unloved stretch of abandoned gas stations and dirty-floored liquor stores and junkyards. And the year I'd spent wandering around the West and working on the first issue, something strange had happened. People had started to come from all over the world, right here to Joshua Tree. The only affordable weekend spot in Southern California. Isaacs and across the great Mojave wilderness, this is Desert Oracle Radio broadcasting from Joshua Tree, KCDZ 107.7 FM Friday nights at 10 p.m. And at various times on our makeshift network of participating community radio stations from coast to coast. Wherever you are, we are on your podcast player. We're always at Desert Oracle Radio. The soundscapes on tonight's show were composed and performed by Joshua Tree's own Red, Blue, Black, Silver. Thanks to our friends who support the show on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Desert Oracle. Thanks for reading and subscribing to our magazine and getting our book, all the stuff. The stuff we make for your enjoyment is so that we have something to do. The weather is getting to that perfect point, so here come the tourists, I guess. Enjoy it while you can. These last quiet weeks of winter before the springtime procession, the procession of the damned. They're not really the damn people got to get out. People need fresh air. People need to see wilderness and beauty. And we're close to a lot of people, so welcome visitors. Please pack out your beer cans and your yoga mats and your strange hats and your inappropriate shoes and all your weird little dogs you bring out here. You know, I've had a letter from Dave McAdam up in Gamma Gulch that has been sitting on top of the pile of letters and cards out of the mailbag, and I keep running out of time. And that's not going to change tonight. Sorry, Dave. I'll have to read your dirty note next week. 
thank you for listening out there. Be nice to your dog, even if it's little, and not too hard on anybody else. And good night from the voice of the desert. <laughs>